please open your Bibles with me to the book of the Psalms. Book of the Psalms. This morning we're looking at Psalm 57. And the psalmist says there in Psalm 57, verse 7, My heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. David says, My heart is fixed. My heart is set. Set upon you, O God. And because it's fixed upon you, O Lord, I will sing unto thee, praising you and giving you all honor. My heart is fixed. Notice the marginal reference on the word fixed. That word may also be rendered prepared. You see, beloved, the heart of the believer is both fixed upon our exalted and victorious Lord Jesus Christ. And we can also say as believers, our heart has been prepared to serve and worship him who is the true and living God in both spirit and in truth. What a blessed thing it is to have our heart fixed, to have our heart prepared by God, to be given a willingness, to be given a need a necessity to worship God and seek His favor in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now, this psalm was written upon the occasion of David fleeing from his enemies. And so we see here, as he flees from his enemies, he's also fleeing to the Lord God Almighty. Indeed, King David is fleeing under the King of glory in his heart for safety, for strength, and for grace to help in time of need. Now, though physically... Outwardly, he was running from his enemies, but inwardly, spiritually speaking, in his heart, he was running and seeking mercy in God himself in Christ. And, beloved, that's where the mercy of God is. That's where it's revealed. That's where the mercy of God is given and provided for us. It's in God's beloved Son, in Christ Jesus the Lord alone. Now look at verse 1. The psalmist writes there, Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me. And beloved, God delights in mercy. Indeed, beloved, he will speak peace unto his people and his saints. For my soul trusteth in thee, yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. The psalmist writes, For my soul trusteth in thee, yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. My friend, it would be awfully wise to ask God to be merciful unto us, would it not? Sadly, it's been my experience that most people aren't interested in mercy. Rather, most people are just interested in merit. But the believer, being taught of God, is a mercy beggar before God. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me. Now this is not vain repetition. Rather, we see here David's heart cry unto the Lord. For my soul trusteth in thee, Lord, I look to you alone. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Beloved, this is our constant need because we are sinners through and through. 
We're sinners by nature, sinners by birth, sinners by thought, and sinners by action. And because we're sinners through and through, beloved, we have a constant need of God's mercy, of His forgiveness, of His grace. A wise woman, a wise man, a wise daughter, a wise son, taught of God, will pray and ask for mercy. As was read to us earlier in that prayer of the publican and the parable that the Lord gave about two men that went to the temple to pray, the one as a proud, arrogant, self-righteous man, the other as a mercy beggar, and he cried out for mercy, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So indeed, a wise person taught of God will ask the Lord for mercy. Have you ever asked the Lord for mercy? My friend, have you ever called upon him? Lord, forgive me of all my sin. Forgive me of all that I am. Be merciful to me, the sinner. The foolish and self-righteous man like the Pharisee will only come before God and brag on himself. With no prayer, no asking, no begging before God. Rather, he just said, I thank you, God, I'm not like that man over there. He's a miserable, wretched man. He's a nobody, but I'm somebody. You figure God heard that man? You figure God showed mercy to that self-righteous Pharisee? Well, the Lord said he didn't. Oh, no. He went down to his house condemned rather than the other. And so it is right, therefore, to pray for mercy. It is wise, my friend, to approach the throne of grace and beg God for mercy. Indeed, for God's mercy in Christ. And so it's right to seek mercy when mercy is found. My friend, would you seek mercy? Would you have mercy of God? Well, then seek it where it's found. Turn over the page there to Psalm 59. And look there with me, beginning in verse 16. But I will sing of thy power. Yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. For thou hast been my defense and my refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing. For God is my defense and the God of my mercy. You see, mercy originates with the living God. For you see, he's the God of mercy. And so since God is a God of mercy, we read God's word setting forth that he's the father of all mercy. And his word further sets forth how that he delights to show mercy. And so therefore, it is most fitting, my friend, most fitting to seek mercy in whom it is found. Where is that? In Christ. and Christ alone. Now, we often use the word grace, and we often use the word mercy. But, you know, there's a difference between grace and mercy. There is a difference. Grace is God graciously giving to us what we do not deserve. You see, of his unmerited, undeserved favor, God sovereignly, graciously gives to us what we do not deserve. And no doubt some of you were 
or are being raised in Christian homes have experienced that as your parents endeavor to both preach and practice the gospel of Christ, the word of God. Beloved, we don't deserve what we've been given. And oh, how undeservedly rich we all are because of his grace. We have all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And that's because of what God has done for us. Beloved, believing sinner of God. God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so grace is God graciously giving to us what we do not deserve. Therefore, we sing together as God's people that old hymn, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and like you, beloved. It is amazing grace that God would be gracious unto wretches like us and bless us abundantly. You see, we're not deserving of his grace in the least. Now, what of mercy? What is mercy? Well, mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And what do we deserve? What do you and I deserve? Well, we deserve nothing but wrath. Nothing but judgment. As one old preacher put it, anything this side of hell is mercy. Anything this side of hell is God not giving us what we deserve. I mean, do any of us deserve God's favor? Do any of us deserve God's mercy? My friend, just as you can't merit God's grace, so too you cannot merit God's mercy. You see, mercy is sovereignly given of God, and he gives it to whom he will. Now, we know this from the scriptures. His mercy is undeserved. His mercy is unmerited. The word of God sets forth there in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. My friend, none of us are deserving of God's mercy. And there's something more to consider here of his mercy. Beloved, his mercy is plenteous. Turn with me to Psalm 103. One hundred and three. Beloved, his mercy is plenteous mercy. See, this storehouse of God's mercy cannot be exhausted. It cannot be depleted. For his mercy is everlasting mercy. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and he is plenteous in mercy. And so his mercy is undeserved. His mercy is plenteous. His mercy is also, further to that, unfailing. We read in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23, how that his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, and how that it is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. Unfailing mercy, what comfort. And there's still more to say, beloved. 
his unfailing mercy. Indeed, his mercies are not temporary mercies. Rather, his mercies are everlasting, eternal mercies. Turn to Psalm 136. And beginning there in verse 1, the psalmist writes, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him who alone doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. And on and on and on. Mercy that endures forever. Beloved, his mercies endure forever and ever. Something else about his mercy. His mercy is sovereign, is it not? For it's not of the person that willeth, or of that person that runneth, but it is of God that shows mercy. When Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory, remember what the Lord said? I shall cause all my goodness to pass before you, and I will be merciful and gracious to whom I will. God's greatest glory, God's greatest glory is my greatest need. Show me your glory, and God shows us, I'll be merciful. And beloved, His greatest glory is my greatest need. Beloved, I need the mercy of God. Indeed, His mercy is my greatest need. In the book of Ephesians, where it describes everything we are by nature, the apostle sets forth how we are by nature dead in sin, without God, without hope, children of wrath, even as others. But then we read that glorious gospel verse. And it's worth reading again. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. We read there those two comforting words. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Now, I don't know about all of you in the pew, but I know for one, I'm going to take my place before the throne of my Heavenly Father and beg for mercy. Indeed, I'll take my place in the dust before Him as a mercy beggar, knowing that He delighteth to show mercy knowing that His mercy is plenteous, unfailing, eternal, and sovereign. Now, He doesn't have to show me mercy. He's not obligated to show me mercy. But I'm going to beg Him for mercy. I'm going to come boldly before the throne of His grace and ask for mercy and grace to help in time of need for Christ's sake. And remember, beloved, as you read through the Scriptures, when the Lord Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, when he walked among men, when, he, when anyone sought him with their need of mercy, not one mercy beggar was ever turned away. Not one. Not once did he turn away anyone seeking mercy. That woman who had the issue of blood, blind Bartimaeus, that leper that approached the Lord and fell down and worshipped him, and said, Lord, you can heal me. If you will, you can make me whole. 
And our Lord said, I will be thou clean. To hear how the Lord never once turned away anyone from mercy ought to encourage all of us, every single one of us, to seek mercy and grace to help in time of need through Christ. Indeed, that ought to encourage all of us for God is merciful and God delighted to show mercy to sinners. The gospel mandate is to preach the gospel to every creature. That's true. But the gospel is only for sinners. <laughs> it's only for sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I heard this testimony and it blessed me. There was a, a friend of ours. His wife was dying in hospice care. And the women that were tending to her asked her how she was. And what they meant by that was, are you okay to die? And this is what she said. She said, my only hope, my only hope is that I really truly am a sinner. That might sound strange to some of you, but the gospel truth is this. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to try and save everybody. He came into the world to triumphantly save sinners. And he shall save all his people. You know, when we read, I mean, some of you may have done this. I've done this far too often that I'd like to admit. I usually just get really discouraged by doing it. When you read these church confessions, they'll say something like this. We believe in the eternal bliss of every believer for all eternity. And we believe in the eternal torment of the lost. Something to that effect. There are no lost. Let me put it to you in this way. God's will, our Heavenly Father's will, is that all of his people be found and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this time state right now, there are most certainly lost sheep in the world. But you know what? Our Lord and God is going to triumphantly save every one of his people. This is what our Lord and God said. He said, this is the Father's will, he who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I shall lose nothing, <laughs> but raise it up again in the last day. Beloved, we trust in a never-failing Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a sovereign, successful Savior. That is how we can have peace. That is how we can have joy, even in the calamity of our death. How is that? Because we're trusting in him who has all power in heaven and earth. And if you're trusting in him, who has all power in heaven and earth. Do you think he's going to fail? Not at all. Beloved, he saves us to the uttermost. And so we ought to be encouraged, every one of us, to seek mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to die and give mercy and grace to sinners. And he's never once turned away a mercy beggar. Now look at the second part of verse 1. David says, my soul trusteth in thee. My friend, where else can a guilty soul look for grace to help in time of need? But unto him who has all power to save us. Beloved, he's able to save to the uttermost all that come to God by him. 
And he has all righteousness to justify guilty sinners. He has all grace to sustain us, all wisdom to enlighten us and to fulfill that full and complete pardon for all of our sins. A full atonement indeed to pardon us and cleanse us of all our sins. And beloved, he makes us complete in Christ. Now, wouldn't it be insane? Wouldn't you just have to be absolutely out of your mind to trust something other than Christ? To trust some other person or something else than the Lord Jesus Christ alone for all salvation? Remember, he spoke that parable to certain religious people that trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And sadly, many people today trust in themselves. They think that their morality somehow recommends to, to God or somehow they think that what they have done or given removes God's wrath. My friend, that's not so. That's not so. Beloved, he has all power to forgive, all righteousness to justify, all grace to save me, all wisdom to enlighten me, and full atonement to set me free. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and in Christ we stand complete. Now look again at the third part of verse 1. My soul trusteth in thee, yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until all these calamities be overpassed. Now we've seen this before during our study thus far of the book of the Psalms. Back in Psalm 36, verse 7, the psalmist declares there, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Now here's the illustration. David says, In the shadow of thy wings I'll make my refuge. Now I understand it used to be the case that the chickens would run loose. Uh, most of them aren't, but things are changing late. Actually, we've been enjoying eggs from pasture-raised chickens at home lately. Anyway, on small family farms, chickens just run around free. And sometimes when the mother hen would have a bunch of baby chicks with her, and the sky gets dark, and the storm approaches, and the thunder rolls and the rain begins, that mother hen will spread out her wings, and all those baby chicks will run right under the shadow of her wings. And what do those baby chicks find there? Great comfort and refuge from the storm, being under the protective wings of their mother. And that's the illustration David is giving, that the Lord Jesus Christ spreads the shadow of his wings, the wings of his love, the wings of his grace, and we make our refuge under the shadow of his mighty, never-failing wings. This is also has reference to the mercy seat. Over that mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, where the winged creatures that covered that mercy seat, where that blood of the Day of Atonement was shed, covering the broken law of God. And we know that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our mercy seat. Beloved, we take our refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we find great comfort and delight in Him. And so in time of trouble, we run to Him and rest. Tyler and Clarissa's father and mother are coming to visit us in July. Now, I don't remember when, but I believe the last time they visited, we did a study there in the book of Ruth. 
And many of you know the story of Ruth, how she fell in love with Naomi and fell in love with Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And Naomi said to Ruth, The Lord hath blessed thee. The Lord God of Israel has, hath blessed thee, under the, whose wings thou art come to trust. And so we trust under the power of his wings, under the power of his grace. And this again refers to the mercy seat and refuge we have in Christ and to all these calamities of this life be overpassed. Our prayer during our time state upon the earth is, Lord, daily hide me under your mighty wings that I might find strength, grace, and mercy in these times of trouble, these days of calamities, these days of wickedness. Hide me until they're all gone, and then take me home where there will be no more trouble, no more calamities, no more death, no more sickness, no more trial. God's Word says there in Revelation chapter 1, verse 2, Revelation chapter 1, Chapter 21, verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them. And be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. No more death. No more sorrow. No more crying. And there shall be no more pain. For the former things are passed away. And beloved, he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Lord, hide me until that day. And then take me to thee on high. Now look at verse 2, back again to Psalm 57. My friend, may God be pleased to reveal Christ in you and show you how that he doeth all things, not some things, all things for his people. David says here in Psalm 57, verse 2, I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. Beloved, he performeth all things for his covenant children. And our prayers are unto the most high God. Now, how, how, how high is God exactly? How high is God really? Can we preach him too big? Can we preach him too high? Is there any danger of doing that? Of anyone giving too much honor, too much glory unto God alone? I don't think so. Not unto us. Not unto us, O Lord, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. In Psalm 135, in verse 5, David says there, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all God's, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth and the seas and all the places. You see, our God, the God whom we serve, is the true and living God. He's not some made-up God. 
Rather, he's the only God, the most high God, and he is the almighty God. He is the absolute sovereign God who does what he will with whom he will, when he will, and who indeed works all things after the counsel of his own perfect and holy will. Beloved, however exalted our enemies be, however exalted our enemies be, our great God and Savior is higher than all. You see, he has no rival. Does anybody rival his power? Does anybody rival God's power? Is the devil a rival to God's power? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Rather, the devil is God's devil. And so there is none higher than God Almighty. Indeed, he can easily defend us. He can easily deliver us and defeat all our enemies. You see, our enemies are his enemies, those who are opposed to the gospel. And then David makes this glorious statement. I love this. Beloved, he performs all things for me. (laughs) He performs all things for us, beloved. All things, not some things. And then the rest is up to you. No, no. He performs all things for me. Indeed, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to God by Christ Jesus. All things are working together for good to them who are called according to God's purpose. He performs all things for his people. Now, that's good news, because I'm unable to perform anything. Unable to accomplish salvation. Unable to accomplish one single thing that would be acceptable before God. How about you? How about you? Are you a helpless sinner? I am. I am utterly and completely helpless and utterly and completely dependent upon him who shall save us utterly. (laughs) Indeed, to the uttermost. Beloved, he performs all things for his covenant people. He's brought in an everlasting righteousness by his doing. And by his dying, he's brought in a complete redemption from all sin by his blood atonement. And he has quickened us by his grace and made us new creatures in Christ. Everything we need, beloved, he has performed for us and freely given that unto us. That's the good news of the gospel. All things have been supplied and rightly so, for the Lord has performed all things in salvation for us. And he will and has accomplished all things for us, beloved. Beloved, he's performed all things for us. We cannot accomplish salvation. That's impossible. But with the Lord, all things are possible. Remember the disciples asked him that question, Lord, who then can be saved? They asked that question with utter astonishment. Lord, who then can be saved? And he said, with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Beloved God, who has begun a good work in you, He will finish it. He will perform it. He will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. It says in Isaiah chapter 44, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. The Lord prayed, Father, I glorified thee on the earth. I finished the work you gave me to do. Beloved, he performs all things for us and then freely gives it to us. Undeservedly. Freely. 
by His grace. You see, the gospel that we preach, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the declaration of what He has done. The gospel is not a declaration of what we must do. Rather, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a declaration of what He has done. It is finished, He said upon the earth. (laughs) And in glory, He said, it is done. A full and complete pardon of all of our sins and a righteousness so utterly complete and perfect, it's acceptable to our Heavenly Father. See, that's what sets this ministry and this local church apart from everybody else in this area. The other religious groups in this area are centered upon what you must do for God. You know, they say things like, God is waiting for you to do something in order to make His salvation work. Well, that's not the message of the Word of God. And that's not the message of the Gospel. Our message is what He has done for us, not what we must do for Him. And beloved, I trust you hear the difference because God has loved you and put you into the light of His darling, beloved Son. Indeed, there's a black and white difference. It's the difference between truth and error. It's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between heaven and hell. My friend, if you're trusting in something that you do, if you're trusting in something you've done, you will most certainly perish in your sins. Again, David says there in verse 2, I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me, Now, what things will God perform? Verse 3. He shall send from heaven. He shall send from heaven. Well, did did he? Did he? Call his name Jesus, for for he shall save his people from their sins. Oh, what a great mystery. The Father and the Son are one. God sent himself to perform all things for us. He shall send from heaven, and because he has sent from heaven, he shall save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up, from the accuser of the brethren. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. And beloved, he did in sending Christ Jesus. You see, God sent from heaven. He shall send, and notice those two things there. He shall send, and he did. And what's the result of that? He shall save. He shall send and he shall save. Beloved, that's exactly what God did for us in Christ Jesus. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. God sent forth his mercy and his truth. The scriptures say, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. Look over there again, uh, Psalm 57, verse 10. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. You see, his mercy is great. Great, great mercy. His mercy and his truth are great. You see, God cannot show mercy at the expense of his truth, at the expense of his holy justice. But in Christ crucified, both his justice is honored and his mercy is magnified. That's the glory of the gospel. How that God can be just and justify the ungodly. 
Now look over at Psalm 85, if you would. Psalm 85. You see, in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ being crucified for our sins, it doesn't change the character of God, now does it? Not at all. For God does not change. But I tell you, what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified is how all the attributes of God are honored and magnified. His love, His truth, His justice, His wrath, all the attributes of God are honored and magnified in Christ crucified. All right, now look there with me in Psalm 85, verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Where did that happen? Christ crucified at the cross. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Because of his goodness, righteousness shall go before him. Now, who is this righteousness? Christ shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other in Christ crucified. Beloved, all the attributes of God are magnified and glorified in Christ and him crucified. Now look at verse 4, Psalm 57, verse 4. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire. David has enemies, and in our day we have those who oppose the gospel of God's grace. Now they may appear very religious and very self-righteous, but when you pin them down, if you can get an honest answer from them, in essence, you'll find out they're worshiping another God and they have another gospel, another spirit, another Jesus. Their message is not the gospel of God concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these sons of men, and not everyone is a child of God, but we're all sons of men. These are false brethren whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. And we see these enemies and their teeth are spears and arrows, and with their tongues they use sharp words. They say very many unpleasant things about those who stand for the gospel of God's grace. Now, you may well say, they're not talking about me like that. But I assure you, beloved, if you take a public stand for the gospel of God's grace, the enemies of the cross will come out of the woodwork. They'll be on you like nobody's business. And they'll come out against you and be against you. We have enemies, beloved. The Lord Jesus Christ had enemies. How did he fare among the religious of his day? Those who hated him most were the self-righteous crowd, was it not? That, that group of self-righteous people. Was that not the case? It was those that trusted in themselves, the self-righteous. Those who were so full of themselves they went out and held counsel how they might destroy him. And they thought they were doing that to their own delight and satisfaction. Look at verse 5. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. In verse 5, 
we see there the believer's desire. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. That's what every believer's desire is. To see Christ exalted in the preaching of the gospel. To see Christ exalted in the life of a person. Christ in you, beloved, is the hope of glory. God has highly exalted him who is his right hand. And so Christ, therefore, of necessity, deserves all honor and glory. And that is the eternal song of the redeemed in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive all honor, glory, blessing, and power, both now and forever. You see, the believer's desire is for Christ to be exalted in us. For Christ in you, beloved, is the sure and steadfast hope of glory. Look at verse 6. David says, My enemies have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst where that, whereof they are fallen themselves. And this was true in the case of King Saul pursuing David. God delivered him into David's hand. And those who sought Daniel's destruction in the lion's den, you know what happened to them? They ended up in the lion's den and their family and their children ended up in the lion's den. Haman built a gallows for Mordecai. And you know what happened? Who was hanged? Haman. Joseph's brethren sold him into slavery. Remember, they put him in a pit and sold him into slavery. Well, who ended up in slavery for 400 years? The Jews sought to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what they cried? They cried this. His blood be on us and on our children. And boy, was it. God decimated that place. God brought destruction upon that city and upon their families and their city. Now look again at verse 7. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise unto Thee. Now when the Scripture speaks about our heart and we say, well, I know this is not just a head thing, but it's a heart thing. And so frequently we, we point to the heart, you know, in here, this, this organ in our chest that pumps blood. But when the scriptures talk about the heart or believing with the heart, it's not talking about the physical organ in the midst of our chest. Rather, when the scriptures talk about our heart, it refers to our mind our understanding, our will, our affections, all that make up the real you. The scriptures teach us, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In Acts chapter 8, the eunuch asks Philip, what hinders me from being baptized and confessing the Lord Jesus Christ? And Philip answered him this way, if you believe with all your heart, and that means your mind, your understanding, your will, your affection. Now let's take a moment to look at this matter just a little bit, beloved. By His mighty grace, our hearts have been changed, and He's given us a new heart. Indeed, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. God has taken away the old stony heart, and God's grace has changed our mind. You see, by nature, our thinking is all screwed up. All of us by nature are just screwed up in our thinking. We think low thoughts of God. 
and high thoughts of ourself. But you know, when grace does a work in our heart, grace, by His power, has changed our thinking. God has changed our mind, and so now we think high thoughts of Him and low thoughts of self. He has caused us to set our affection on Him. Grace has also changed our understanding. What are we by nature? Ignorant. Just just plain ignorant. Paul says of those Jews in Romans chapter 10, being ignorant of God, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they're going about to establish their own righteousness. But beloved, grace has changed our understanding so that we're no longer seeking salvation by our doing. He's given us an understanding that salvation is not by something you do, sinner. Rather, salvation is done by the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, he's changed our understanding. It says this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And so he has changed our mind. We think upon him and we, th- we think right thoughts of him. He has changed our understanding so we're no longer ignorant of God. We, we know who he is and we know what he has done. Grace has also changed our will. False religion always talks about man's will being free. Well, well, my friend, it's not free. It's not. Rather, man's will is in bondage. And so when anybody ever starts talking about, well, you know, man has a free will, I try to interject this thought if they let me. The will is not really the issue. Because when they really get right down to it, what dictates our will? You see, our nature dictates our will. And it's in bondage to our sinful nature. And therefore, man's will is like free running water. Like the water in this glass. You see, if I took this cup of water and I poured it here, it's going to run out of the cup. And which way is it going to run? I trust you just saw which way it ran. Let's see. It ran right downhill, did it not? How about that? Just ran out down here on both sides. Just ran out of the cup and it went and ran downward. And so what we seek in nature, why this natural flesh, if that's all we have, all we're going to seek is the lowest point. Free running water doesn't run uphill. Something has to push it uphill. And man's nature is always selfward and downward. Never Godward and upward. Rather, something has to push it. Something has to change it. So that his people shall be willing in the day of his power. You see, by nature, our Lord said, No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. Grace has changed our mind. Changed our understanding. Grace has changed our will. We now love him. And grace has changed our affection. You know what? Believers now love him. We love him, beloved. Now, not like we ought to, not like we should, not like we will someday, but we do love him, for grace has changed our affection. One time we loved ourselves and hated him, but now we hate ourselves and love him. We say with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? 
I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see what he's saying here? My heart is fixed. My heart is prepared. Our heart is fixed, not frustrated, but fixed upon the object of our affection, fixed upon the object of our faith. Christ has established our hearts upon him, and the foundation of faith is the word alone. My heart, therefore, is not only fixed, but as the marginal reference has it, my heart is prepared or made ready to worship him, to honor him, to glorify him, to wait upon his good providence and to serve him, to witness to others and to sing of his great goodness. Look what it says in verse 9. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations, singing about his mercy and his truth. We are told by the Lord Jesus Christ, go to the whole world, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I will praise him among the people, God's people. I will praise him and give him all the honor and glory. And so I'll do the same among the ungodly. I'll praise him and honor him and go and preach the gospel into all the world as God gives us grace to do so. We'll do that, beloved, as God enables us. Again, Psalm 57, verse 9. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations, for thy mercy is great under the heavens, and thy truth under the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Amen.